I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week for one very cool segment, if you are a baseball fan. Jason Stark is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Britt Giroli is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic as well, two of the best in the business. And we get into uh, really some interesting stuff. Uh, again, I think you're really going to dig this. Um, talk about what the next three months, four months will be for a baseball writer as they have to navigate... Uh, labor, which is not really anything anybody wants to read, with the fun stuff that people love about baseball and transactions and and what to expect for teams this upcoming year. So we get into sort of you know how you sort of navigate that world if you're a national baseball writer like uh, like both of the uh, of those two are. Talk about media access and how it's been significantly reduced in 2020 and 2021, and both um, both fear that uh, we may see a much more uh, reduced media access over the next couple of years. And they explain, I thought, really, really thoughtfully and well why that affects you as a fan and as a reader. That is not good news if that happens. So definitely listen into that conversation. Talk about uh, voting for MVPs when um, some of the MVP MVP contract language for players uh, really impacts them financially. Just look at the Byron Buxton contract. Uh, he gets, I think, escalators depending on where he finishes in MVP voting. And writers have a real impact on that and what that means. And then finally, we get into the um, the Eras Committee Hall of Fame selections. It was a really great day for Major League Baseball with Buck O'Neill and Gil Hodges and Minnie Minosa, etc. But the one really glaring just omission is Dick Allen. And Jason Stark is very, very eloquent on him and that omission. He, uh, of course, is a longtime Philadelphia writer, Jason Stark, and Dick Allen played there. And uh, that's just, that's an awful miss. There's really no way around it. So uh, Jason Stark and Britt Early for uh, a fun 40-minute conversation on baseball media coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, these are two of the uh, the best colleagues that I have at The Athletic, Jason Stark, senior baseball writer. Uh, you know, if you're a baseball fan or, or watcher, it really doesn't need much of an introduction. Richard Oli is also a senior writer for The Athletic. Again, if you are a baseball watcher or reader, you've read her work at various places, um, and they are now part of the, uh, uh, the armada of baseball talent that we have at The Athletic, and I'm pleased to be joined by both of you. Both of you have your own podcast, so thank you for slumming to, to head to this, this small po- media podcast. I, I appreciate it, Jason and Britt. Hey, podcasts are taking over the world, so might as well ride with it, man. All right, Britt, I'm going to start with you. Um, as we tape this, we're taping this um, the second week of December. We are obviously in the middle of uh, labor issues in baseball. So as a national baseball reporter, like how will you approach the next three months in terms of what you want to write, um, how you want to approach what you want to write. And I'll get into this, but sort of navigating this weird world of obviously reporting on the labor situation, but also providing baseball fans with like the things that they really love, which is about the players and, and roster composition and things like that. Yeah, it's difficult. And I know 
this is my first lockout. Um, Jason obviously has been doing this much longer than I have and can speak to what happened the last time around. But for me, uh, because we're not allowed to talk to technically team employees or anything like that, I have made it a point to kind of up communication with players. And I spoke to a few of them this morning um, just to kind of keep the pulse on something that's going on. Um, there's a lot of rules about what we can and can't do in terms of team employees, but the players right now can talk to us or, or feel free to kind of do whatever they want. So I've kind of sketched out ideas about, you know, maybe guys that I want to talk to, especially guys who aren't big names, who will give you the time and the access in the off season. Um, and then of course, unfortunately, there's always seems to be a steady stream of investigative stuff to do that I never have time to do that now, because there's no baseball and no news, I have tons of time to do. Jason, you're a veteran of this, so you're welcome to answer that question with some perhaps insight into what it was like for you the last time. Yeah, I mean, for, first off, I'm not happy to hear this is going to last three months. <laughs> I, w- I would rather take the under on that if there's any way you can arrange it. So, <laughs> but but it might. It could easily last three months or more than that. I've I found. Sadly, that in previous labor disputes, one thing that can happen is they take on a life of their own. So I am prepared for that. Um, I've had a lot of thoughts about how we should go about this. I've talked to some of the other writers uh, that I work with about how we should go about this. And the first thing I think, as somebody who's covered labor, actually, I covered the negotiations. I've told everybody, try not to get too deep into the weeds of the dispute itself. Honestly, very, very, very few people care about any of that. But I do think that we can dig into big ideas, uh, how they would affect our sport, how they would affect, uh, if you're a beat writer, the team that you cover. Uh, Just to give you an example, uh, I talked with one of our beat writers just the other day about um, an idea that he had. He was looking at one of the proposals that's gotten out there. I, don't, I guess I shouldn't give too much information on it yet since his story isn't done. But um, and he was thinking about how it would affect his team. And he asked me, is this a story? And his thinking goes, well, it might not happen, but it's being talked about. So how is it even a story? Well, it is. Like This is the kind of thing I think we should be writing about. Big ideas how they would play, reverberate through the sport if they did happen. Because uh, Doug Lanville and I just had Andrew Miller uh, on our Starkville podcast um, dropping Tuesday. And Doug and Andrew were talking about how sometimes when we write about stuff, the other side will react to what we've written as opposed to what was said in the room, you know, and uh, we can maybe even have an impact just by exploring ideas. So that that's a thing I love to do anyway. Um, I also think, like think of all the off season moves that have already happened. We had this frenzy of free agency where over $2 billion worth of contracts got signed in a week. And I, I think it gives us the opportunity to do what, say, the NBA writers do every offseason. Their free agency is over in like 72 hours. And they find other stuff to write and talk about. Why can't we do that? Um, I think we will. Britt, this, um, you know, th- this is obviously would be more of a, of a question or a conceit 
for a uh, for an editor or someone who's sort of running a vertical, as we would sort of say at our place. But from your perspective, like, how would you play the percentages of putting out labor-related content versus the stuff that Jason just said in terms of figuring out all these other interesting um, things to do? Because like one thing I struggle with is like I understand the journalistic importance and value of of sort of updating readers on what is going on with labor, but the real reality of the world that me, you, and Jason live in is we know what will draw more interest, page views, subscriptions, and it's not that. And so, how do you do that sort of navigation or push and pull? Push and pull in terms of there's sort of a journal journalistic responsibility here at the same time. The, you're never going to, you're not going to have a labor, you know, if it, if the athletic labor was a site, it, it would not be a very successful site. You know, you know what I'm getting at? So it's sort of an interesting dynamic that, uh, that you and Jason and everybody's covering baseball right now has to sort of figure out. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think if I was an editor or just if I was looking at it through the lens of, should I write this? Should I not write this? Is it interesting to a baseball fan? Um, and it doesn't need to be, like um, something that, you know, everybody would be interested in. Uh, but you also have to be really careful just writing for baseball reporters, right? Like we all care about the labor updates. We care about the minutia. But even diehard baseball fans that I know are just like, wake me up when this is all over. So unless you get some kind of scoop that, you know, like we had in the athletic, um, I think a month or two ago, maybe even closer that, you know, the league had proposed paying players based on war. Now that's interesting. That's unique. That's out of the box. That's worth a story. But when we find out, and, you know, as I mentioned, I talked to players this morning, nobody knows when they're going to negotiate again, the two sides. If you find out when they're going to negotiate again, that is not a story. That is a tweet. In my opinion, I think you have to be really careful um, with labor fatigue I feel like I already have labor fatigue to some extent. Like I'm already like, wake me up when this is over. I don't want to write about it. I don't want to think about it. Um, so I think you have to approach it like that. And the nice thing is we have so many writers that um, people are going to think outside of the box. In many ways, COVID prepared us to write about a sport when it wasn't going on. So we're all experts in dusting off the old stories and coming up with wacky ideas like Jason said the big ideas exploring stuff um personally I think unless there is a tangible way to move forward the labor story I would just rather not read about it at this point in time yeah let, let me jump in here because I've been around long enough now that I actually covered the 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 strike in 1994 and 1995 for eight months and I, I mean, I, I covered it the way Evan Drellick has, has to cover this thing for The Athletic. And Evan's done a great job. Those stories have really gotten big readership, at least to this point. It's a credit to him. But I honestly got the feeling, uh, trying to write the play-by-play of those negotiations for eight months, that nobody read any of it. <laughs> the only story they wanted to read was, here's when it's going to be over. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, I told the story on the Starkville podcast too, but I'll tell it again. Um, covering those negotiations, which were going absolutely nowhere, was the worst thing I have ever covered. Um, and we had a bunch of us, uh, these sides were meeting all the time and they would bop around different hotels in the East Coast. And there were, there were a group of us, Peter Gammons, uh, Joel Sherman, uh, 
the late, great Jerome Holtzman. There were quite a few of us. We would travel around from place to place covering these meetings like they were games. Uh, they were playing games with us. That's really the games they were, they were playing. But I think at one point we counted 18 different hotels, uh, mostly around the East Coast, that they had met at to negotiate. And these are all places that were fancy, big-time hotels that we were not going to stay at. So I spent days of my life, all of us, hanging around the lobbies of hotels that we were not staying at, <laughs> writing stories that nobody read, okay? <laughs> waiting for these press conferences that were just a big show. So I think about it this time of year because December was the worst. December was the time that I remember the most because picture this, we're sitting in these hotel lobbies the holidays are coming. The Christmas carols are playing. The trees, they're decorated. Like all day long, people are walking through the lobbies of those hotels. They have their shopping bags. They're all happy and joyous and they're hugging their loved ones. <laughs> and they're planning their holidays. And we're just sitting in the lobby waiting for Don Fear to come out. <laughs> okay. And I was thinking, when do I get my life back? How did, I want to be joyous. I want to hug my loved ones. When do I, when do I, when does that happen? How did I get here? How do I get out of here? And so I'm so happy that Evan Drellick has that job for the athletic. Evan, you're my hero. Many, you're my hero for many reasons, but especially for this reason. Yeah. Wow. Just thinking of uh, Don Fear coming out from under the Christmas tree. That's not a, that's not a real. Play the piano one night, like at two in the morning. Oh, at least you, you have that. Look it up. Britt, I want to uh, I want to switch to media access. This is a pretty interesting um, story to me because it um, it really has a lot of uh, possibilities and potentially significant possibilities as we head forward. So, uh, for my listeners, if you can give them a sense of of how you would evaluate the access that you had to players and coaches this year, understanding that. It probably was more of a hybrid than 2020. You might have more access this year than the previous year. Understanding that different jurisdictions, you know, maybe you have better access in one state than um, than another state. And then I'll eventually get to this, but you can certainly go as long as you want here. What I'm ultimately trying to get at is where you think this is going heading forward. Because the league has really, um, you know, professional sports leagues, generally speaking, once access has been reduced – they, it tends to stay reduced, even if the reason for the access being reduced no longer exists, which in this case would be obviously COVID protocols. So let's start from the beginning. What kind of, how would you evaluate the access that you had to players and coaches in 2021? I thought it was terrible still. Um, was it better than 2020? Yes. Was the bar inches off the ground? Yes. We had virtually no access to players in 2020. So being able to, I think it was about halfway through the season stand on the field for batting practice and maybe get a guy in person um, seemed like a huge deal. But when you think about it, there are a lot of hurdles to it. Um, I went out to the West Coast for a week. And during that, I was at the Dodger Stadium for three days. They didn't take BP any of those days. Therefore, I had no access to anybody. It if I knew a player, I could maybe text them to come out into the dugout but again, you are now relying on existing relationships when those are going to go away. The only reason you have relationships with guys in this sport is because you're in the clubhouse every day. 
because you have conversations with them. Then you get their phone number and you're able to communicate with them and you have a professional working relationship. Now that is going to go away when you don't ever see these guys. And what the Dodgers also did that I thought was particularly terrible was on Zoom. We were all, they were not allowed to see your face. Like all three of us right now are on Zoom, but we can see, oh, sorry guys, that was Buck Showalter. Uh, <laughs> you got to take it, take it. Just and tape it, just, just, do, for you. just do it live on the podcast for me. I could use the extra download. <laughs> but so, for example, so the Dodgers. Come on, Buck. Very important. <laughs> hey, Buck, can I call you right back? Okay, bye. Love that. Are you okay, Britt, if we leave that on? He's old. He's going to keep calling. That's amazing. Nice. Um, That's very, you know, like Jason, as you know, from your ESPN experience, it's not so uncommon for people to get news while doing a live hit. Like we've seen that it's insane, but it is true. It does. That's impressive that you did that. Uh, Well, I'm writing a column for tomorrow about why Buck should be Mets manager. So I will. I once, I once answered my, I once answered my phone and broke a trade on baseball tonight on the set. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, I just got a just we'll go we'll go but we'll give the listeners behind the scenes. I just got a text from uh, producer Patrick asking me should I leave that in? Yeah, Patrick. Hell yeah, leave that in. That's uh, that's natural sound. I love that. Keep going, Britt. Oh gosh. So anyway, we you know, man, give me access, or I'm only going to be able to talk to the people that were on the Orioles from 2010 to 2018. Uh, no, but the Dodgers also had no faces showing, so the players also couldn't see who Jason was who I am, who you are, what we looked like. So when they stood on the field, you were still a nameless, faceless person to them. And I thought that that was particularly cruel. So I think the access is so important because the relationships are so important because in baseball, more than any other sport, it relies on those crucial moments, the minutia, the spending a lot of time in there with guys. Um, Some guys, you need to prove yourself. You need to work your way up to that trust. They're not going to tell you stuff off the record until you've gotten to that level. So, you know, I think when you look at sports that need that kind of access, um, baseball doesn't have as many media as the NFL. It's not as big as the NFL. Um, The simple question for me boils down to does baseball want more coverage or less coverage, right? And if you're going to restrict the media access, then you're going to force papers and outlets and resources to cover other things, things that are bigger, things where maybe they can do a better job. Um, And so for me, unfortunately, I think that's kind of the way baseball has to look at this. I know some players think that we're annoying and we stand in there. Um, But to this, I say, who is, who is in there advocating for the players? Because the players never completely trust the team. So there's always that disconnect. And the media has always been kind of that intermediary. You're having, you don't think you're playing a lot or this guy secretly hurt or there's some issues in the clubhouse, those guys are going to tell you that, but they're not going to tell you that standing there at BP when everyone can see Jason talking to a player, right? They're going to do it quietly in a clubhouse where nobody notices because Jason talks to 10 different guys. And now nobody knows who Jason's source is when he goes and writes it in a day or two. It just fundamentally changes so many things about this job when we're not in there and you're not able to have these conversations with guys and you're not able to say, wow, I didn't realize that. Let me follow up on this story idea. Those are organic conversations. Grabbing a guy off of the field when he's got two minutes or he wants to eat or he wants to stretch and he's got things to do. Those are not organic conversations. Those are rapid fire interviews. So I think the access was terrible 
this past year. I think it was obviously terrible in 2020 for health related reasons. Uh, and I worry if we don't get it back, what is going to become of this sport? What's going to become of the reporting of this sport? Because fans who don't really see our importance don't realize that all those features they really like, all those investigative pieces, the news, the inside stories, those don't happen without relationships and phone numbers. And that doesn't happen unless you're in the clubhouse. Jason, um, yeah, I just want you to, the, the one thing, you, you please respond to Britt, but the other thing I wanted to add to you was, you know, I, I, I've been in many, many clubhouses, baseball, probably the least of the big four sports. But one of the things that always stood out to me was just how many reporters were in a baseball clubhouse after a game and just the sort of the access that you in theory had to everybody. Do you like, will that exist or is that again in heading forward? Or do you feel like that's, that's anachronistic and the league and teams are going to take sort of this little period here and, like Britt said, maybe continue to reduce? Well, um, as Britt knows, uh, I've been very involved in the, the conversations with the league and the union about access. Uh, I don't know if negotiations quite describes it, but I was the, uh, I've been the point person for access by national baseball writers. Um, and it's been quite an experience. Uh, I mean, these conversations are ongoing, and I don't know that I can give every detail of every conversation I've had even recently about it, but it's a big worry of mine um, that we'll, it will never go back to what it was before. And so that requires people like me and Britt and many others making sure that we remind the people involved what they're losing. And Britt, I don't know how many times you said the word conversation, but conversation to me is the most important thing that we are losing. Um, if we don't get back to those conversations with the people we cover, relationships will never get built. Uh, if we don't get back to those conversations with the people that we cover, there are stories that literally will never get told. Um, there's such a difference between having a conversation, a fairly casual conversation with a player at his locker versus what Britt described, hoping that guy in his way back to the dugout after BP will stop for a minute and a half. Or even more challenging, you have to ask Club PR to go bring this player out for five minutes before the game to answer specific questions that you are clearing through Club PR about a story idea that you thought up versus that player telling you his story and you're learning things you never knew, the, the backstories, how he learned three languages or five languages, that, that thing his his father or his grandfather or his uncle or his brother used to do with him when he was a kid that led him to this moment. There's just so many stories that get told, great stories, memorable stories, because of the conversations. And it's vital that we have them. And I'm really worried that they don't miss us. They've forgotten what we even do in there. And what they remember the most is not that. It's what you just described, Rich. It's all the people who are in the room and they have no idea what who they are or what they're doing outside of a handful of us. And so I don't know where this is leading. I just know it's important that we continue 
to fight for as close to what we had as we can get back to because I make this point all the time when I have these conversations. It's not just us who lose out. It's them. It's, it's, it's their voice that needs to be heard. Never been more important than right now. Jason, just one follow-up on that, and then we'll, we'll head to the Hall of Fame. When you're having these conversations, in a lot of other leagues, the access can be dictated by the league as opposed to individual teams. And, you know, we have seen historically, particularly in the NFL, under the, like the Roselle era, where, where Pete Roselle really understood the value of the media and would dictate to owners and organizations that, like, you got here's you have to have this kind of access, you have to open this up. So without giving away maybe, you know, anything proprietary that you're discussing, is this a case where the league can dictate this if the league finds its importance? Or are you really dealing with all these individual teams where some teams will be like, okay, and other teams are like, no, we want to shut this access down? Uh, you know, it's, it's all of the above. This is part of the baseball labor negotiations. This is in the basic agreement. At some point, it will get negotiated some some clause, some portion of that labor deal will deal with our access. And uh, that concerns me because <laughs> I don't know where we rank on their list of priorities, but what do you think, Britt? 500th, 5,000th? You know, it's, it's that thing, right? It's that thing they're going to decide in, in the last 10 minutes of, oh, no, we never talked about media access. And so that's why, you know, I'm trying to get out ahead of it. We're trying to get out ahead of it. Trent Rosen, see Trent Rosencrantz, who covers the Reds for us. Uh, Rosencrantz uh, has been involved in this. He's been the president of the baseball writers for the last year. And so we're, you know, we're trying to lay groundwork so that the league understands and the union understands the value that we have. But we've had moments throughout the last two seasons where we think we have an understanding with the league about what's coming next and some individual team or teams will make some totally other decision that's the opposite of that and so we have to either talk to that team directly or have someone from the league talk to that team directly to straighten it out i've dealt with all of this stuff um it's been it's been one of the biggest challenges uh that we've faced the last two years is the, you know, like the rules that we used to know them have all been suspended. So teams just do their thing, and we're constantly playing this game of whack-a-mole, just trying to restore some semblance of access. Crazy. Britt, um, we'll, we'll finish with the Hall of Fame, but I'll, I'll, I'll do this with you and this topic with you and Jason uh, first. So two final things I want to um, talk to you guys about. Um, Byron Buxton of the Twins recently um, signed a deal. And the interesting thing, at least from my perspective, that I noticed about was that depending on where he um, places in the most valuable player voting, like his salary can increase. So like depending on, I think, and if I'm exactly incorrect on this contract, my my bad, but roughly I think he gets a certain more, he gets a certain amount of money based on where he places in like MVP voting. And so what's interesting um, for me given that is that writers vote for the MVP and 
writers now, at least in the case of Byron Buxton, and probably obviously anybody else who has a similar clause, they have a real impact on the finances of an athlete. And not that I think Byron Buxton would do that or anybody else would do that, but you know, in theory, it would open the door up for a Byron Buxton to sort of talk to some MVP voter and say, "Hey, you know, uh, help me out, like you know, down the road, I'd let you know." Love, or, or even if like something crazy, like, "Hey, you know, I'll talk to you all year if you if you, if, if if you think of me when MVP voting comes around." It's a really weird place for a journalist to be, understanding that the people in the the baseball writers do vote for this, and they vote for Hall of Fame, and they vote for so. Um, there are probably, I think I'm right about this, there are probably some news organizations that actually decline this. I don't know if the New York Times votes in any of this stuff. I think historically they haven't. But how do you feel about that in the fact that if you are one of these MVP or Cy Young voters, like in theory, you have real, um, you have a real say in how much money someone in the sport will make? Well, I think if you're a voter, you have to take the responsibility because you always have some say in how much money these guys are going to make because – there's always usually a clause for guys when they make all-star games, when they make MVP, uh, when they finish in the top 10 on the MVP, Cy Young's, Silver Sluggers, things like this, um, many of which the media have some kind of say in, um, they usually get a bonus. Now, it's not set up the way Buxton's is, but with a guy like Buxton, the issue has always been health. So I kind of understand why they would tie it to, listen, if he's getting MVP votes, that means he's on the field. And the issue has never been, Buxton's talent it's been can he stay on the field can he play so you know I think every time I vote for an award I try to acknowledge that this is going to impact lives this is important to guys this isn't just you know a participation certificate this is worth money to a lot of people um, and I think that you know most if not all other writers feel that way as well I don't have a hall of fame vote because my first 10 years covering baseball was with MLB.com. So those technically don't count. I have to reset now. Um, but if I did, I would agonize over it because you're now not talking about money. You're also talking about legacy. Uh, you're talking about how somebody is going to be remembered, how their family is going to talk about them, honor them. Uh, you know, many Hall of Famers are not alive when their name gets announced. So it's, it's a huge responsibility and one that I hope gets taken seriously. Though it seems like every year there's some knucklehead that's like not voting correctly or, you know, not voting Derek Jeter in anonymously. And, and he has to say in his speech, like, thanks to all but one of you. Um, you know, this this is a concern. I'm, I know it's a concern for players that writers don't take it seriously. But I can say it for myself, I'm sure for Jason, I would say most baseball writers know that this holds a lot of weight and that it is a huge responsibility that can be taken away at any time in any kind of negotiations that we will no longer have. So we need to kind of treat it with the reverence it deserves. Yeah, I'd actually like to ask Britt a question about this because uh, you, Britt, you've been a, a beat writer more recently than I have. Um, have you ever been in a situation where a player or the player's team, somebody on the team, actually was was blatantly lobbying for you to cast a vote for a player that you covered? Because it, it happened to me back in the day. Really? No, uh, no. Now, there are teams who send out like press releases, kind of, you know, lobbying, but they'll send it to everybody. Um, no, I have never. I have heard, though, conversely, I do know several players who, uh, in MVP voting in particular, know writers who didn't put them on ballots. And then it created a lot of animosity in that relationship. So I know at least two relationships 
um, beat writer to player that have suffered because the beat writer has not put them high enough or not included them on an awards ballot. So Jason, I want you to get into that. And by the way, just as a converse, you know, you could be a beat writer or a writer who votes somebody maybe higher than they should, and that sets you up for a good relationship heading forward. But you listen, you've been doing this a long time. So my sense is that you have you've probably seen under the onion here on all this stuff. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can tell you that I've never, ever looked at a player's contract when it came time to vote on anything. Um, I do think as a national writer, it's it tends to be easier, although I, I mean, I, I've certainly had people with teams say, hey, have you thought about this guy as MVP? Never really even thinking about them. They're trying to help his uh, his bank account, you know. I'm sure that I'm sure that happens. Um, as I said, when I worked in Philadelphia, I've had it happen to me. I've seen players lobby other writers to do it. I had a really weird thing that happened to me one year. This was the year I was an MVP voter, uh, and the the National League MVP was going to come down to Andrew Jones against Albert Pujols, and the Atlanta chapter of the baseball writers did not have enough voters so that I didn't even know this at the time. I, they, they assigned me one of their MVP votes as a national at large voter. I didn't know this. So it, I'm, I'm weighing Albert versus Andrew. Albert was the right vote. I voted for Albert. Then the results come out and you know, when they list how everybody voted, they listed me as having the Atlanta vote and not voting for their guy. And it became a thing. It was weird. I didn't even know I had that vote. So just imagine when you know you have it, you know, what you deal with. I think it's gone on for a long time. It goes with the territory. If you're a beat writer, especially, and you don't feel comfortable voting, you should not vote. I can tell you that I'm going to vote how I'm going to vote, regardless of what anybody's contract reads. And if you want to get mad at me because I didn't trigger your incentive clause, I look at it as that's on you. It's not on me. All right, Brie, let's finish up on this. Um, and Jason, I'll give you the final word on this um, This one. The, I, I was, uh, like many, um, just like many baseball watchers, um, I found the, um, the ERAs Committee Hall of Fame voting pretty interesting. Um, one, it was very cool to see some of these people get in who – um, I think have been deserving for a long time. Like Buck O'Neill to me, like um, should have been in the hall of fame a long time ago, because like, again, hall of fames to me are made up of human beings, you know, men and women. And like, it, like Buck O'Neill's value to the game goes way beyond his um, playing. And obviously he was a great player for his time. So like, that was cool. And obviously Minnie Minosa and um, um, you know, we saw everybody sort of can find the list. Um, I'll get to Jason because this will be a sort of one for him as a Philly guy, but Dick Allen not getting in was just once again, just really frustrating. Just given one, he deserves it based on play and two, he was such a pioneer ahead of his time when it came to, um, sort of how baseball was covered via the prism of race. But I like this as I just want to get your take as a, as a, as a baseball writer. Like, I think this was cool. Like this was a cool outside the box idea to figure out a way to get people into the hall of fame, like Gil Hodges, who could not have gotten in like through the traditional means. And I like it because I'm, I'm one who thinks that like, we're a little too sacrosanct sometimes with the hall of fame. And like, like you're allowed to like make 
modernizations to it if it sort of writes previous wrongs. You know what I mean? Like, it's a museum created by humans. It's not some deified structure that the aliens came down and provided for us. Like, we can we can change it. We can shape it. And so, I don't know. I thought that was a cool thing. Like, I, I thought for baseball, like, that was a good day. Like, that was just cool to see these really interesting people get into the Hall of Fame. And you change the lives of a lot of these families, like the Hodges family and stuff. So from your perspective, like what, I don't know if you had, if you guys had votes in it or if you were part of it, but what did you think about it? I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was awesome. I don't have a vote in it. As I said, the decade I spent at MLB.com as a beat writer effectively doesn't count towards Hall of Fame status. So I kind of had to restart when I came here. Um, The Buck O'Neill I mean, anyone who doesn't know much about him, I would encourage you to read Joe Posnanski's book, The Soul of Baseball. Um, Just a terrific ode to what he meant. I mean, this guy was in his 90s traveling around, still telling people, anyone who would listen, about the greats from the Negro Leagues. I mean, arguably nobody did more than he did to champion those players. And it's the reason why we, many of us have heard of these players. It's the reason why many of these players are now getting their due. So... The Buck O'Neill thing to me, I wish it had happened earlier. We all wish it had happened when he was alive. Uh, but Gil Hodges is another great one. Minnie Minoso. I mean, you look at the people that were honored, and I thought it was awesome to see. I thought it was a great thing for the sport to, as you said, kind of acknowledge that it doesn't have to be just stats, right? There, are, There is room here. There's wiggle room. These are people. And the Hall of Fame of people Buck O'Neill belongs in. So, I thought it was awesome. And it was a rare, like, good news day. When we talk about everything going on in baseball now, it's all bad news with the labor. To be able to just kind of forget about that for a little while and to kind of go back and look up these guys and, you know, to, to, you know, families, probably fathers, grandfathers, introducing their sons to these guys for the first time. You think about that. And that's what makes this game so cool. So I thought it was a really special, well-done thing. Yeah, I'm with you. And actually, it, uh, you brought up sort of these contributions away from the game. Like Jim Cott has been a phenomenal broadcaster. Like, so to me, like if I was a voter, like that would count for me in terms of con- the, 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 the capital contributions to the game. I know as a voter, sometimes you have to keep it specific to whatever the bylaws are, but that was cool. Like that was another guy to me who, even if you thought he was maybe a touch short as a player, well, his contributions then over the next 20 plus years as a grade A broadcaster to me, bring him in. All right, Jason, I wanted to get your sort of take on one, um, just about this sort of era's committee, like bringing new people in. And then please go as long as you want on Dick Allen, who I, I don't, I, I, I know there's six, there were 16 people on the committee. He only got 12 votes. It's very hard for me to even understand how that is possible because all these smart stack guys like Jay Jaffe will tell you statistically he deserves to be in. And then just, if you know anything about his story and sort of just what he endured in the sport, like he deserves to be in on that too. So that, that was frustrating. Like that, that, that's the only sort of negative about what I thought was an awesome day was that that guy should have been in. Yeah, that was a heartbreaking part of it. Um, and I've, Rich, you should know, I've, I have experienced serving on one of these committees. Um, I served on the committee that elected Jack Morris and Alan Trammell a few years back. And it was an incredible experience, much as you just described. Um, these committees do serve a really valuable purpose. Um you know, as writers, we have one perspective on the players we vote on. But to get to sit in a room for many hours with a bunch of really 
bright players, uh, perceptive players. And, you know, it gave me an opportunity. I, you know, I'd spent hours and hours and hours preparing, okay, and going through the cases of every player. And then I would, I could, I could lay out, this is why this player seems deserving, but here is why he never got elected by the writers. And then I could turn to George Brett, Robin Yount, Dennis Eckersley, Rod Carew, Don Sutton, Dave Winfield. These were, they were all in the room and say, what did you guys see? And we got incredible perspective from behind the scenes on every one of those players that was so valuable. Um, like Ted Simmons, who had been one and done on the writer's ballot, was on our ballot that year. That was not the year he got elected, but he went from uh, a guy who was off the Hall of Fame radar screen to almost getting elected in our our vote because of the conversations and the insight we got. And that's the way those committees are supposed to work. What happened to Dick Allen is... It's sad. It's so unfortunate. And there are, there are a lot of reasons for it, I think. If you, if you just do the math, you can see it's almost impossible to have that group, 16 voters, elect five players. You know, just add up. They have 64 total votes and you have to get 75%. So that's 48 of them right there. And then there were almost, you know, for, for four players to get 12 to 14 votes and then be enough votes left over to elect Dick Allen was going to be really hard. It's a secret ballot. You don't know how everybody else is voting. I can tell you, I was terrified of thinking, oh no, this guy missed by one vote and it was my vote because I wanted to vote for somebody else. And so, that's part of the issue is only having four names on a ballot as good as what that committee had to consider that you could vote for. That was really difficult. So I think that's, that's clearly part of it. But then the other part is what you just mentioned, which is the numbers that make Dick Allen's case are not the numbers that the people in that room, most of them grew up with, uh, played with. Um, you know, weighted, runs created plus, OPS plus, that was never a topic. And we spent six hours talking my year. There, were, there was no talk about numbers like that. The, those are the numbers that make Dick Allen's case. And why did he come up a vote short? Why did five people in that room not vote for him? I have to think that's a big part of it. Um, they see a guy who didn't get 2,000 hits. They see a guy who, who didn't get 400 home runs. If you look at the counting numbers, they don't seem to be enough. That, that obviously hurt him in this case. But the other half of that story is the other thing you touched on. Why weren't they enough? Why weren't the counting numbers greater? Dick Hallen had a lot of a lot of stuff swirling around him in the time that he played. And he had he had issues that caused him to leave his team. Um, I, I don't it's hard to go through it all, you know, the whole saga. Read more about Dick Allen and you'll understand what I'm talking about. That he was a he was a product of times where 
it was so difficult to be a black man playing baseball in America, uh, parts of America, parts that included Philadelphia, parts that certainly included the South when he was coming up through the minor leagues. And you'll understand what he dealt with and how that led to so many of the issues that he had as a player um, that weren't reflected in mass media, that didn't really emerge until years later. Um, All of that is part of his story, part of why he didn't get votes from the writers in his time on our ballot, and why he hasn't been able to get elected by these committees. As best we can tell, he's the only player ever to come a vote short twice and not get in. And now it's five more years until his name gets considered again. Uh, I keep using the same word when I think about it, write about it, talk about it. Heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah, well said. Um, We'll pay attention five years from now to hopefully that that wrong gets corrected. Uh, Jason Stark is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Britt Giroli is also a senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Uh, I encourage you to uh, check out both their stuff. Um, online as well as their uh, their audio work. Uh, they're two of the best uh, people that we have at that place. Britt and Jason, this was really, really interesting. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, some very, some really interesting topics uh, that sort of morph into the media. So thanks so much today for joining me on the, the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Britt Gerorley and Jason Stark both of The Athletic, where I work for their insights. I appreciate them coming on and discussing what the next couple months are going to look like in baseball. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page. Uh, Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Those are very important for us. And you can check out the archives. Prior to this episode, we had James Andrew Miller on the history of HBO and HBO Sports. He uh, was joined by Bruce Feldman, who talked about all the craziness that's going on college football. Prior to that, we had Rebecca Lowe of NBC Sports, conversation with Mike Green and Ian Eagle. That was fun having those two guys together. Prior to that, Pam Oliver of Fox Sports on her amazing career. Before that, Chris Jericho of AEW and professional wrestling fame. And before that, Robert Griffin III of ESPN. So should be something in the archives that uh, you'll enjoy if you're into sports media. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti, of course, for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody to Cadence 13 for their support. Mostly, thank you for listening. It's always appreciated, and we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.